As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm John Fassman. And back in South London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The east of Congo is as complex as it is bloody, a mishmash of armed groups and historically violent relations with neighboring Rwanda and Uganda. We examine the return of M23, a particularly well-armed militia that's rekindling regional rivalries. And Brexit dried up the supply of foreign workers who kept Britain's agriculture sector humming. Without them, unpicked crops have rotted in the field. But one firm may have found a solution. It looks like a fridge, and its name is Sprout. But first... Abe Shinzo, Japan's former prime minister, has been killed. He was shot twice this morning while giving a campaign speech. The suspected shooter was immediately caught and arrested. No motive has yet been determined. The assassination has sent shockwaves through Japan. Abe Shinzo, the former prime minister of Japan, was shot during a campaign event in the city of Nara in western Japan. Noah Snyder is our Tokyo bureau chief. He was meeting with supporters on a local street, unprotected, when a gunman approached from behind, shot him twice, once in the neck and in the chest. He collapsed immediately. There's photos from the scene that showed him receiving CPR with blood seeping through his white shirt. He was rushed to a hospital nearby. And as we're recording now, I've, I've just learned late afternoon time here in Japan on Friday uh, that Abe has been pronounced dead. So tell us more, if you can, about the event at which he was shot and the sort of circumstances of the shooting. So Mr. Abe was stumping for a candidate in upcoming elections. Japan is supposed to have upper house elections this Sunday, July 10th. This is the last of the campaign stretch. And Mr. Abe was campaigning really in open view in the streets, which is typical for Japanese politicians. This is a country where both gun violence and political violence are extremely rare. Politicians tend to get up close and personal with voters and security is, is often laxer than it would be, for example, at big political rallies in the U.S. Because this kind of thing is so shocking and really for many unfathomable. Noah, what do we know about the assassin? So far, we know it was a Japanese man named Yamagami Tetsuya, who's 41 years old. He was arrested on the scene, and we don't know much, if anything at all, about his motives. He supposedly has used perhaps a homemade weapon, a gun-like piece of equipment, as a police spokesman said. Some Japanese media have reported that he once served in Japan's self-defense forces almost 20 years ago, but we know very little about the shooter, and very little about his motives at this stage. So tell me about Abe Shinzo himself, his legacy, what he's known for, how he's remembered politically. Abe was modern Japan's most consequential leader. 
He was prime minister twice, once for a very, very brief stretch in 2006, 2007, and then again from 2012 to 2020, which was the longest run of any post-war Japanese leader. And in many ways, he transformed the country, in particular when it comes to Japan's foreign policy and Japan's defense policy. Abe's political raison d'etre was to bring Japan out of the post-war era, that is to say, to, to bring Japan beyond the, the shackles of the constitution imposed by America after the Second World War. And that meant having a Japan with more robust defenses of its own, a more robust military of its own, and more both legal and financial capacity to act in the world. So Abe transformed Japan's role as a global actor, and he transformed the way Japanese power is wielded. Now, those changes were controversial, polarizing even inside Japan. Some of the reforms he made to Japan's security laws in 2014 and 2015 drew large protests here in Japan. But even during the time of those protests, it, it would have been really impossible to imagine an act of outright political violence like this. So that's policy. Let's talk about politics for a moment. He was one of the few world leaders to have a, have a close working relationship with both Barack Obama and Donald Trump. What kind of politician was he? Well, a canny one, as his long time in office shows. He was really adept at both playing the factional politics within the LDP, positioning himself in a way where he used some of his economic policies, some of his more popular domestic moves to give himself space to do some of the more controversial things when it came to security and foreign policy. He was really a master of wielding power within the LDP, Japan's longtime ruling party. And at the same time, he was a chameleon-like figure internationally. I mean, he was able to build relationships with a range of figures. He ingratiated himself to Trump, recognizing just how important America is to Japan's uh, security in the context of the U.S.-Japan alliance. But perhaps most importantly, he was the face of a country that hadn't had an international face for quite a long time. Before Abe and in his first stint as prime minister, the country had gone through a, what they called a revolving door of prime ministers, short-lived leaders one after another. So in some ways, political stability proved to be his greatest legacy as a leader. And Noah, you met him, if I'm remembering right, six weeks ago. What was your impression of him personally? Yeah, I did meet Abe recently. I sat down for a long interview with him, in part because he's continued to play a really outsized role in Japanese politics, even since resigning as, as prime minister in late 2020. He returned to the Japanese parliament, the Diet, and he heads up the largest faction within the ruling party. And he's really used his prominence to shape the debate in Japan, especially on security and on foreign policy. And my impression talking to him was that he still had a lot of unfinished business. Um, this wasn't a, a former leader kicking back and, and reminiscing about the good old days, enjoying his time as a, a wise and older statesman. This was a politician still very much in the game and someone who clearly had an agenda that remained unfulfilled. So he was quite serious and, and quite focused on the present-day politics and on the future of the country. I would also say there was no sign that I saw that he was worried about his own physical security, no sense that threats were mounting or that he had to 
changed the way he operates. He seemed quite relaxed. He met me alone in his office. So this must be an enormous shock for everyone around him. And in your article this morning, you quote a viral tweet, Japan is no longer safe and peaceful. And as you mentioned, Abe Shinzo was speaking to a crowd without barriers, and politicians in Japan generally travel with far less security. Do you think that will end in the wake of Prime Minister Abe's assassination? It's still early days, and it's, it's hard to say exactly how this will ripple through Japanese politics and, and Japanese society. But I think it's clear that this is going to reshape the country far beyond this weekend's vote or the question of how politicians meet with their constituents. I mean, I think, of course, we will see more security and a tighter environment around those events. But I think fundamentally, as that tweet suggests, this has really fundamentally shaken some assumptions that people in Japan held dear, this sense that Japan is an oasis of stability and a nation free of of gun violence of, of this kind. And I think those assumptions will clearly change in the wake of this assassination. The bigger question is where those changes lead. Japan is a place that, historically speaking, has been transformed by large external shocks, whether they're natural disasters, tsunamis and earthquakes, or geopolitical disasters, or the Second World War. External shocks have a way of transforming the system here in really profound ways. And I think there's a good possibility that Abe Shinzo's assassination will come to be seen as as one such shock. All right, Noah, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Rising violence in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo has deep roots in the past, making for a worrisome future in the region. The Second Congo War, the so-called Great War of Africa, lasted nearly five years, starting in 1998. It involved neighboring Rwanda, Uganda, Angola. Perhaps as many as five million people died in eastern Congo, mostly of war-related hunger or disease. Today, more than 120 armed groups prowl the region, some with political aims, most just bandits in it for the mineral wealth. It's a complicated picture. The militias are often formed along ethnic lines in a part of the world where those cross national borders and evoke terrible memories. Tensions between Congo and Rwanda are rising once again over the re-emergence of a particularly ambitious rebel group. Yesterday, the two countries agreed to begin a de-escalation process but Eastern Congo remains fractious and dangerous. When Felix Tshisekedi, Congo's president, came to power after a rigged election in 2019, he said he would bring peace to Eastern Congo. John McDermott is our chief Africa correspondent. But perhaps unsurprisingly, that has proved difficult. And why is that? 
The region's main city, Goma, is 1,600 kilometers away from Kinshasa, Congo's capital, and there are nine other African capitals that are closer. So it would be hard for any government to get a grip on what's happening there, never mind one that's as weak as Congo's. And in the recent months, we've seen that government forces there are in danger of being overrun by just one of the many rebel groups. This one's known as M23. And tell us about them. Why are they the threat? M23 is led by ethnic Tutsis, the minority group that runs Rwanda today and was the main victims of the genocide in 1994, which was perpetrated by the then Hutu-led Rwandan government. M23 emerged into prominence in 2012 with the backing of Rwanda, according to the UN, and its arrival prompted the formation of a UN force, and those troops, together with some international pressure, caused Rwanda to cut its supply lines to the groups, and... By 2013, the group, which had taken quite a lot of territory, including Goma, had splintered and fled into neighbouring Rwanda and Uganda. Neither of these countries went after the group's leaders, so they remained dormant for several years. And we think in about 2017, they slipped back into Congo, where they've laid low until the past few months. And so what's happened over the past few months then? What kind of headway are they making? They've made quite a lot, if not as much as they did about a decade ago. In recent weeks, they've displaced tens of thousands of people and they've attacked army bases and captured uh, a little bit more territory. On June 13th, they seized a town on Congo's border with Uganda, where they've been taxing cross-border trade to get income for their fighting. And while the latest offensive is confined to a small patch of North Kivu, which is one of the regions in the east, there are fears that M23 could recapture Goma, a city of some 2 million people. And there are further concerns that things could get even worse. How do you mean? In what ways could things get worse? Well, the M23 is one of the better-armed gangs of rebel groups in the east of Congo. It has quite sophisticated firepower. It can shoot down aircraft, which has added weight to accusations that it was behind the shooting down of a UN helicopter back in March. And there's also indirect effects of M23's resurgence as well. So Congo's army has had to redeploy troops that were previously fighting jihadists affiliated to Islamic State. That's a group called the Allied Democratic Forces, or the ADF. And perhaps most importantly, the return to prominence of M23 tragically signals a renewed meddling in eastern Congo by the country's neighbours. They have been doing this on and off for many years due to a combination of a desire to go after rebel groups they oppose and a desire to take control of the lucrative minerals beneath the soil there. And whenever there's more interference in the East, there's a lot more to worry about. And and given the history here, how does neighboring Rwanda fit into the conflict this time now that M23 is resurging? Well, it's a bloody and complex picture. Congo's government accuses Rwanda of once again backing M23. President Paul Kagame of Rwanda says that isn't happening and lays counter-accusations that Congo's army is supporting a rebel group that opposes his government. As ever, the truth is quite difficult to figure out, but there's certainly danger of further violence. This week, Mr. Tshisekedi told the Financial Times that he could not rule out the possibility of war between Congo and Rwanda. And even if it doesn't get to that, whenever there are tensions between the two countries, there's always a risk of 
ethnically based and mob violence and ordinary people getting caught in the middle. And what's your view on all the finger pointing here? Is Mr. Chisikedi right to put the blame at the feet of Paul Kagame? It's difficult to know. Some people refer to the goings-on in Eastern Congo as a kind of alphabet soup in reference to the number of rebel groups. To me, sometimes it feels more like a kind of alphabet swamp. There's so many things going on. But I think we can say a couple of things. The first is that Mr. Tshisekedi has brought some of the problems upon himself by subcontracting the security of the East to his neighbours. So in 2019... Mr. Tshisekedi, who at that point was getting on fairly well with Mr. Kagame, asked Rwandan forces to come in to target some Hutu-based rebels in the East. And then after the ADF, this Islamic State affiliate, bombed Kampala, the Ugandan capital, he allowed some Ugandan troops across the border to attack that group as well. And since Uganda and Rwanda don't always get on, that has also added to tensions as well. And it's perhaps no coincidence that M23 has re-emerged soon after Uganda moved in. And as if that wasn't simple enough, there's also some concern that the Ugandans are now trying to co-opt the M23 for themselves. What does this all mean? We're still figuring out, but the point is clear that Mr. Tshisekedi came in, promised peace, but hasn't done much to deliver it himself. He's relied on others who now seem to have turned against him. So essentially, Mr. Tsishikedi has asked other countries to help suppress rebels on his own territory, which in turn has stirred the alphabet soup. We have the rise of another, even deadlier group. Where is this all going, do you reckon? Well, Congress President Mr. Tshisekedi is once again trying to subcontract his problems. A couple of weeks ago, he authorized the deployment within the East of a Kenyan-led force. And there's no way that the Congolese state can provide security if it's constantly relying on outsiders. Mr. Tshisekedi has to try as hard as he can to clean up troops that are notoriously brutal, notoriously corrupt, often selling their guns to the armed groups that they're supposed to be fighting. Ultimately, if he's going to make good on that promise he made back in 2019, he has to ensure that Congo has some competent soldiers and that the country is no longer at the mercy of its predatory neighbors. Thanks very much for your time, John. Thank you, Jason. What you're hearing could be the sound of the future of the British countryside. I heard it when I found myself last week in a muddy field deep in the English countryside in Gloucestershire. Catherine Nixie writes about Britain for The Economist. Running down the length of the field are these neat earthen mounds. It looks like it's just been ploughed, with short stalks poking out of the top. And they are asparagus, that very odd, very fast-growing vegetable. Part tree, part triffid. If you cut it one morning and come back the next day, then the field has returned. When I was there, driving over the top of those mounds, making that noise that you could hear there, was a large robot hunting out those asparagus spears. Now, as you and our other listeners can hear, I'm not English, so this supposition of mine may be somewhat prejudicial, (laughs) but I don't tend to associate bucolic English fields with 
clanking robots. No, I know. And nor asparagus, which is sort of the most English of all vegetables. It's it's picked from St. George's Day until Midsummer's Day. And English fields know they're associated with traditional farming in green and pleasant land, but that might be changing. So standing next to this robot was its inventor, Chris Chavas. I'm one of the founders and CTO of Muddy Machines. We're based in a field just outside of Gloucester with an autonomous asparagus harvesting robot, which we call Sprout. So he calls his robot Sprout. What does Sprout look like? (laughs) Well, I hate to be disappointing, but Sprout pretty much looked like a fridge on wheels. It is not a kind of sleek ex-machina android type of robot. It was sort of a a U-shaped fridge on wheels, and it rumbled over the field quite slowly. And underneath it, it had a selection of cameras and other clever little sort of nipping and tucking tools. And as it drove over the asparagus bed, it was able to select ripe asparagus stalks or spears and then pick them. Chris explained how it worked. So there's a camera on the side of the machine, which is looking out across the asparagus bed using the camera image and a deep learning algorithm to detect where each of those spears are and then measure the length of the asparagus. And if it's long enough, the end effect of the tool, harvesting tool, will then pick each of those spears and drop it off at the side of the machine. It's not an easy task. Harvesting is really hard for robots. Leaves confuse them, bumps baffle them, colours stymies them. And there's an idea called Morovich's paradox, which says that what's easy for us is hard for robots and vice versa. And they find picking really difficult. There was a study done to find the easiest and the trickiest crops for robots to harvest. And aubergine was bottom because it's delicate for one thing and the foliage gets in the way. And asparagus came out on top. So Sprout is clever enough to avoid picking the spears that are too small. And it can operate relatively independently, tottering along the length of the field, picking out this fast-growing vegetable. And Chris, show me what it looked like as it operated. Let's give it a go. We're going to try harvesting a few spears. Right in front of me, Sprout edged forward, stopped over a group of spears and sort of brooded for a moment. And then it grasped a spear in its robot fingers. Its cutter slid into position. It went snip and it popped the severed spear onto a conveyor belt. There you go. So we've just harvested two spears and dropped them on the conveying system at the side of the machine. I mean, I'll admit it was an odd sight. That seems quite some length to go to to pull a stalk of asparagus from the ground. Yes, it does. But it's surprisingly necessary tech. The world is suffering from a serious shortage of seasonal workers. While I was at the farm, I met John Chin, Britain's biggest asparagus producer. The problem is labour. We can't get it. And if we can't get labour, we don't have a business. And so John was saying that last summer he needed 1,300 workers to pick his fields. And he got about 800. So trying to find labour is what keeps farmers awake. And it's particularly acute in Britain, where Brexit has, of course, been spoiling harvests as well as growth. The seasonal workers just aren't coming to the country from Europe anymore. And so last summer in Sussex, peas rotted in fields, in Cornwall, daffodils wilted where they grew. Everywhere, farmers are suffering. So could robots be the solution? Sprout is still in development. It's pretty nifty, but it's not available to all farmers yet. But innovation is definitely happening. 
And John Chin is optimistic. His dream would be to see a herd, that's what he thinks of them as, a herd of robot pickers in his fields next year. I want to start quietly next year with 100 robots. He would like to see 100. It's unlikely that he'll get quite that many, but he really needs them. Because for him, the stakes are high. We don't get labour, we don't have a business. The UK imports asparagus instead of letting us bring in pickers. And you won't be able to buy English asparagus, but you'll be able to buy Peruvian asparagus. He says that the stress on farmers to find seasonal workers is now so bad that if they can't find a solution, then they'll just all give up soon. So without fast innovation and perhaps a fleet of kind of nifty robots, British asparagus may no longer be on the menu. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway and Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and assistant producer Abisoye Oshindairo, with extra production help this week from Elma Schutz and Emily Elias. We'll all see you back here on Monday. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.